and welcome to the Moving in the Right Direction podcast. Of course, it's a podcast designed to successfully guide seniors and their families in moving from their longtime home to the lifestyle that they deserve. I'm your host, Chris Essenberg, and I am joined by senior real estate specialist and author Bruce Nemovitz. As always, uh, how are you doing today, Bruce? I'm always good, Chris, when I can be on with you. <laughs> well, uh, the feeling is mutual. Um, now, uh, we're, we're going to get to our guest in just a moment, and I'm really excited to have our guest. I can only imagine the amount of interesting individuals that you've had the chance to, uh, to meet uh, working in the industry for over four decades. Yeah, Chris, you know, I've been... In this, as you said, for quite a long time, and I'm my business focuses on boomers and their parents. So I think as people get older, they get wiser and they have all these great life experiences that they can share. And I ran across a gentleman, uh, his daughter called me uh, just to meet her father, and, and she wanted me to know a little bit about his past. And so she asked me over to the home and I met her father. What a wonderful man. He's, uh, he loves ballroom dancing, still does it in his 90s. But wow. the interesting thing about him was that he said, Bruce, I got to tell you a little bit about my military career. And as I was looking around his living room, it literally looked like a museum of World War II. He had model airplanes up of the planes that were used in he had model airplanes that were used in World War II. He had uh, clippings from the newspaper. So anyway, he told me that he was the last mission. He was part of the last mission in World War II until the war ended. And uh, the last mission, huh? He was he was a part of the last mission, the very last mission in World War II. And uh, of course, uh, thankfully, the war ended. Came back home and stayed really involved in veterans organizations. And he actually um, was uh, friends with uh, the president, George Bush Sr., uh, who was also a pilot. HW, not gonna do it. <laughs> Could you do a little more of that, Chris? Oh yeah, I would, can't do it, would be bad, it'd be bad. I was like, that was, I really did the, uh, I grew up doing the impression of the Dana Carvey impression of HW. That was like my first little parlor trick at age six, just going, not gonna do it, wouldn't be present. And that was, <laughs> that, was that was my little thing. That was what little Chrissy did to make the adults laugh. But anyways, I so digress. He, now here's, here's something interesting. He also had a, a clipping he showed me. I, I can't remember if it's Colonel, Admiral, but Tibbetts was the pilot uh, who did drop the uh, atomic bomb. Okay. And, uh, and it was, um, the ship was called the Enola Gay. And he asked him how he felt about it. And he told me that uh, Tibbetts said that um, he really felt that it had to be done and it, and it was the only way to end the war and it would actually save lives. I mean, that's a tough, tough decision to make. And he was truly shocked uh, how bright it was, you know, when it did explode and um, obviously the damage that it did, but he did uh, feel that it had to be done. So, but he showed me different clippings and he was so excited about uh, 
life just to see somebody at 95 years old that excited just really warmed my heart and what is why i love what i do wow and, and you know you just probably go into that situation uh, having no idea who you're gonna meet what experiences they have what what they've gone through and it just like the stuff that you know, people like myself doing uh, presidential SNL impressions has only read about in history books. And, uh, and then you meet someone that that's like a, a part of their part of their story, I can only can only imagine, you know, what what all of that does to a person, but that that is so uh, that is so interesting. And the other thing is, you know, he does actively speak uh, to groups all over the country. And I think it's important. Because War is horrible, and sometimes movies glorify it, and it's it's just a terrible thing. And so here's somebody who was who was there. He was in it, and shares that with all the groups out there, so that hopefully that we can avoid having a, a world war like that ever again. You know, so I think it's great to have people speaking out on it that that are still with us. Absolutely. But I, I can only imagine the levels of trauma. And I mean, I've, I've seen the horrific impacts that it has uh, waged on the entire world. Um, but, you know, really, I think, you know, what, what we're just getting at here is, is the uh, such a wide reach that you have. Um, and that's, of course, also going to be displayed today when we get to talk to another individual that was uh, within, uh, within your, your circle. And he was also the governor of Wisconsin in the 70s, uh, Martin Schreiber. This is probably someone that you grew up uh, knowing about, Bruce, right before you guys got to uh, work together uh, decades later in life. Yes, uh, Chris, I was in college at the time when he became governor. And to think that someday I would actually have him as a friend. And uh, I had the privilege of speaking with him at uh, some of our uh, senior gatherings. And he is so incredibly interesting because his story is very close. It's his, it's about his wife and he wrote a book called My Two Elaines, which he'll be talking about, but just so, so fortunate to meet folks like that. And, you know, I think it really does highlight too, like, you know, we see, okay, well, someone is a, has a career in politics and someone has a kind of a public persona uh, but, you know, these these individuals are uh, dealing with the same stuff that we're all dealing with. And I, I know something that is affecting so many families out there uh, that are at a certain stage in life, which is, you know, aging and dementia and, and how that actually, you know, how that impacts their own experience. And so I, I'm really excited to get to talk to um, Marty today. So so let's let's get right to it. So we are so excited to have our guest today. Um, he uh, is the former governor of Wisconsin. That's right, former governor of Wisconsin. He's an esteemed author, um, and he is Martin Schreiber. Uh, governor Martin Schreiber, welcome, Marty. We are so glad to have you today. How well, are you? Thank you. Well, it's great to be with you, and, and uh, Bruce, it's good to see you again, and as I told you earlier, if this would be a live podcast, people would know why I'm, I mean, when I say live is this would be a visual podcast, people would know what I am going to say is, and as I hate to be on a visual podcast with you, because then I'm no longer the best looking guy in the room. But anyway, I'm no, sure, with you, and it's a compliment. And uh, 
And this is quite a compliment to be on your on your show on your. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Well, we are so glad to have you. Um, so I know where we wanted to start here is just uh, is give the folks an idea. I mean, they, obviously you were the governor of Wisconsin, but you've also done a lot of other great things uh, besides that. Should I call you governor? Should I call you uh, Martin? Sure, governor. You can call me governor. That would be really fine. Okay, well, governor, governor, then we're wondering, you know, who is Governor Schreiber? I know you wrote an important book, which we're going to get to soon. But, uh, you know, not everyone becomes governor. Uh, So how did that happen? Uh, What was it like? I bet you have some pretty interesting uh, stories you can share. Yeah, way back in 1848, when our uh, state of Wisconsin entered the union, uh, that was they were looking for highly intelligent people. And uh, no, no here, first of all, most, most I think of your viewers don't, uh, are not even old enough uh, to know when I was governor because that goes back to 1978. I was just uh, you know, 37 years of age uh, when, when I stepped into office. Uh, but uh, I tell you, to, to be a, a governor uh, is uh, a, a great, great honor. And I think about it and, and just, uh, look at the, the opportunity to try and make a difference, to try and, 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 and get government in a direction where, where people feel confident uh, in, in its decision-making, in, in its, uh, uh, oh, what do they call that, when you can see uh, uh, and know what's going on and openness in government. And so uh, it's, and, and I guess it's, it, I, I never was very good at sports, but, it, it's sort of like if, if you would be what I would imagine to be a basketball player and your team is down just by two points and the coach calls you in there and says, look, we need someone who can hopefully make a difference. Uh, you go in there, you, 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 go, you get into the game. And so what I think about is the fact that, you know, here when I had an opportunity to step into the office of, of governor, it was a wonderful opportunity to work to to do our best that government was responsive and and doing its job so that was just a great experience and then uh you know i think one of the neat things about about being governor is everybody you meet graduated from the same high school i graduated from uh once i went uh, pheasant hunting and i walk along and a pheasant flies up and i shoot once but i hear two shots and then the pheasant falls and they say good shot governor well uh, <laughs> fellow behind me, you know, lowering his shotgun because they were trying to make me feel good. So, but any, oh, and my jokes were funnier. You can't have no idea what kind of a, a humorous guy, not a comedian, mind you, but a very, uh, a fellow with a very intense uh, quality, uh, intel, intellectual sense of humor I was. And so well, one, of the, one of the things that uh, was, a, was a compliment to me, people would say he's, he's a lot smarter than he seems. <laughs> Just... Quite, quite a compliment. But anyway. Well, I understand that your your father was in politics too, right? Ed was on the city council and ever since I was four years old. And uh, what would happen is, and so he was on for, for uh, 28 years, which means all of my growing up, uh, he was on the city common council as an alderman. And he would come home from uh, his meetings and so forth. So we would have, have dinner or supper, we called it then. And he would tell his my mom what was what what his day was like. And then 
he would go out to respond to, to phone calls. Now, maybe the garbage wasn't collected. Maybe the ash box at that time was not properly secured. Uh, sometimes there were people who were without food. Sometimes it was uh, uh, who, an, a neighbor issue. Well, he took me along with him and I had a firsthand opportunity to really understand what, what public service is all about. And I loved it. My dad uh, became my idol. And from when I could remember wanting to do anything, I wanted to be a governor. Governor, I have to interject here because you and I um, have spoken. Um, we give our talks. I talk about the challenge of moving from one's longtime home. And you're talking about the book you wrote. And I have to say that you have quite the sense of humor, number one. Um, every no, time no I longer see your governor, Bruce, I lost that election. <laughs> okay, Marty. Which not brings, so funny anymore. Well, it, it brings me to the next question I have. If you were governor today, let's just say you were hypothetically in this divisive, vitriolic state of affairs we're in, what do you think it would be like to be governor today? Well, first of all, I greatly admire Governor Evers um, uh, with his patience. Um, and uh, I think it's a supreme challenge to be governor in this day and age. But first of all, way back in my era, if you would disagree with someone, you didn't dislike them. You had a different of a viewpoint. And the goal was how best can, can you and I come to a conclusion to, to get to where we think the, the best solution is for the people. And I don't see that today. And, and, and uh, again, Governor Evers is a friend, and so you should, spoiler alert, he is my friend. Uh, but by the same token, to, to constantly reach out, to constantly be rejected, to have people uh, have such a vitriolic uh, feeling, uh, it, hurts, it hurts democracy, it, it hurts the people, it keeps good things from happening that ordinarily really should happen to have us put our best foot forward as a people. But um, I, I guess I would try and do the same thing Governor Evers is doing, and that is be of, of patience and openness and know that it's, it's not a personality uh, that's involved. It's a matter of striving for what is in the best interest of the people. That is very, very true, Governor. I think that is something that's missing from discourse today in politics, but also something that is harder to come by when there are, you know, literally we all have publishable voices via social media and uh, everyone's got an opinion and it's typically at opposition, direct opposition with someone else's. It's definitely a different time, but uh, I wanted to get back into uh, a little bit of the uh, your recent backstory, uh, post-governor, and, and find out a little bit more about when you met Bruce, how you met Bruce, and how that all came to be. Uh, so so can you tell us how you came to meet uh, old Bruce over here? Well, he needed bail money. <laughs> <laughs> Not the first time, right? <laughs> I've been there. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Uh, but anyway, so I wrote my book, My Two Elaines, and uh, uh, we have a, a mutual friend. And uh, I was talking to her about how, what I do with this book. I wrote it. Now, what do I do? And, well, she says, you've got to meet Bruce. He's the most wonderful uh, person uh, you could ever hope to meet. I know he would sit and visit with you. And everything she said about Bruce was true. And uh, 
And so we sat down over a cup of coffee at, uh, at a restaurant. He shared his book with me. He showed me what he did. And I thought, wow, um, you know, if it's possible to duplicate uh, what he was done just a little bit, well, it did work out. I followed his, his, uh, his lead. Uh, I, I followed his, his trail of what he did. And, and it turned out. And then since that time, uh, we've had an opportunity to, uh, you know, rub elbows periodically. And uh, so it's been really good. And, and I tell you, I really admire, Bruce, on, on, on what you are doing uh, as, it, as it relates to helping people uh, in and out of their homes. And I, until the day I die, I will never forget ever, ever, and I will always have seared in my memory the day that I took Elaine to assisted living. Uh, when we left our home, when she left our home for the last time. And oh gosh, it was such a horrible, horrible experience. But anyway, I knew that that was best for her. And uh, what a compliment then to my children for helping me understand what was best for me, because they said, dad, if you don't take care of yourself, you're gonna be dead before mom. And why do we wanna lose two parents? We're already in the process of losing one to Alzheimer's. Why do we wanna lose two? And so when, when I think about that experience and then I think about what Bruce and his team, what your team does, Bruce, uh, that it, you know, you help people through some of the most, if not the most, one of the most difficult decision-making experiences of life. I, I have to say that um, you and I have met at the Lutheran home, and I know that you visit your wife, Elaine, every day. And we sat and talked, uh, I forgot, in the, in the kitchen somewhere, and we had some coffee, and, and you really, you know, shared your life experience with me. And I just can't thank you enough for that, because that, to me, meant everything that you would open yourself up like that. So that I just want you to know that. Well, thank you. Uh, and and I'll tell you, um, you know, for anyone listening to to you and the work that you do, um, you and I both acknowledge the tough time, the tough decision making, the the challenge in and of itself. But then you add COVID onto the um, mix. Uh, as another ingredient. And all of a sudden, I know that sometimes we as caregivers can simply feel overwhelmed. And uh, if we can understand that there's help there, uh, if we can understand that uh, things can get better and probably will. Uh, oh, and, and Bruce, one, one of the things that, that you helped me with and not, not absolutely direct, but uh, you helped me understand that rather than worrying about the storm to pass, to try and learn how to dance in the rain. And so really the point being is no matter how challenging something might be, there may always be things that we can do to, to make things better, to, uh, to make things more livable. Well, and I know that, you know, we're speaking to an audience, I think mostly maybe boomers and parents. And just the thought that uh, the challenge, as you said, is there, and it was really magnified, I think, during this pandemic. Now, Governor, we mentioned that, of course, you were the governor, but we also mentioned you were an author. So I wanted to get into your book. Uh, it's called My Two Elaines. Would you let us know, uh, you know, what that title is about, 
what prompted you to write the book? Uh, give us a little backstory on that, if you don't mind. Well, it, it's basically built on the principle that if Alzheimer's is bad, ignorance of the disease is worse. And uh, Elaine was now going on, we're now going on 18 years since her diagnosis. And just for the listeners to follow along, Elaine is your wife? Elaine is my wife, and, and she's now still at assisted living, uh, as I said, going on 18 years. And, uh, and so uh, if we go back maybe 20 years, that's when she was beginning to get lost going to and from places. You know, something would happen on a Thursday. She said it happened on a Saturday, and, and she would be getting sort of her recipes mixed up and so forth. Well, up until that point, the first Elaine, that was the girl that I met when I was 14 years of age in Latin class in high school. Um, the girl that I fell in love with almost immediately. Uh, we, uh, we, we, we dated, we went steady, we got engaged, we got married. Uh, four children, 13 grandchildren, now almost seven great-grandchildren. She was the hardest working campaigner, amazing. Not only a wonderful wife, but if I would ever lose, she would never let me feel defeated. And so that was the, 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 the first Elaine. And as I said, the second Elaine began to appear when she would get lost driving to and from places she had been going to and from for 10 years, when she would get be getting things mixed up, when she would continue to ask the same questions over and over again. And so Elaine was diagnosed and... I wish that someone would have told me what I was in for. And, uh, and so if Alzheimer's is bad, ignorance of the disease is worse. Ignorance of the disease uh, by the medical profession who does not understand that there are two patients when there is an Alzheimer's diagnosis, the person who was diagnosed and also the caregiver. A caregiver many times has a better chance of dying before their loved one. Why? Because of the anxiety, the depression, the worry, the unacknowledged grief, all of the things that come in into play when you are fighting a battle that you're losing. And so I explain in the book how I went through hundreds of thousands of dollars of, of medical tests and, and treatment and care and so forth. Never did, and I blame myself for this as much as anybody, but never did I stand back and say, now why? ordinarily very healthy. Why am I all of a sudden having these, these health problems? Well, not all of a sudden, but over this period of time. And uh, well, what was happening is this, this disease was getting the better of me. I thought I could fight it on its own terms, but you can't. And so it's like, I went through this experience over this period of time and maybe seven years uh, with, with Elaine as your caregiver and so forth before we go into assisted living. And so now um, I'm beginning to say, wait a minute, why can't I share this with other caregivers? I've been sort of on this, this, this trail, this, this trip to the mountain and, and now coming back again. If I could only sit and talk with a caregiver and before they go on their journey and say, look, please sit down next to me and let me tell you some of the things that are important. Well, that being said, uh, Marty, what do you think the most important thing is to keep in mind as a caregiver? 
One of the things that is so very important is to understand that we have to join the world of the person who now is. As long as I tried to pull Elaine and keep her in my world, there was frustration and anxiety on her part as well as on my part. Once I finally began to understand that I had to join her world, if I began to understand that, 18 years ago when Elaine was first diagnosed with Alzheimer's, it was one of the top 10 killers, the only one that could not be cured, delayed, or prevented. It is now 18 years later, it is still the same disease, but it still cannot be cured, delayed, or prevented. And so what we have to do then is understand that we have to fight this disease on on our terms and not on its terms. So we can't confront it directly because we'll never beat it. But what we can do is understand the importance of letting go of the person who once was so we can embrace the person who now is. What we can do is make sure we understand how devastating this can be for our own health and we owe it to our loved one to take care of ourselves. And therefore we should have the courage to ask for help. So we begin to learn different things. And I wrote the book then because I wanted to do everything I could to help caregivers learn, cope, and survive. The disease is terrible enough. Add on to that ignorance about the disease, and you've got a situation which is untenable, miserable, causing more harm. You know, uh, Marty, um, as I'm listening to you, helping many families go through, you know, some of their tragedies and and uh, their family members have had issues, either health or financial, and trying to get through all that. But one of the things I think about as you're talking, um, you, you really made a valid point that Alzheimer's doesn't just affect the person that gets Alzheimer's, it's the family. And I'm wondering if you could just share some advice for, like many times I work with the siblings, the children of the person that's affected. And I just wondered if you had any advice for the family, how to get along and get through this. Well, first of all, it's a severe strain on the family, uh, particularly when some family members live out of town. And also, uh, it puts a strain. Uh, it, it was tough for me under many fronts until I learned to understand that everyone handles grief a different way. And I have four children, and I need to understand, needed to understand that each of my four children were dealing with this grieving as I was dealing with my grieving, they were dealing with their grieving in, 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 a, in a different way. And therefore, one thing I would advise families to do is to not put their grieving pattern into expecting what their siblings grieving pattern should be. So it's gonna be different. But then also it is sometimes very difficult to have siblings agree that their parent has dementia, either because of refusing to accept it, I mean, refusing to acknowledge it, or because they don't see it. And so it is so important uh, to, to get the, the siblings on the same page. How do you get siblings on the same page? Well, if they some live out of town, they should come into town and they should spend a day, two, or three with you know their parent who uh, who is who is ill uh, with with dementia, so they can better understand. But then also, uh, even uh, they should even think about if there's even a heightened kind of confrontation among the siblings to actually get involved 
and, and bring aboard a, a mediator type to help uh, respond to these different questions and these different ideas. But uh, you're, not gonna, you're, you're not gonna get at this thing with a sledgehammer by saying, this is the way it should be done and so forth. The best way of getting to it is to try and reach a mutual understanding of the, the degree of dementia in, in the loved one parent. Now, Bruce tells me that you uh, you still visit Elaine daily. Uh, I'm just curious if you would mind uh, just kind of walking us through how a typical visit goes. Well, first of all, this is, uh, you know, as I said, we're going on 18 years and, and almost, you know, five years in, in assisted living. Sure. And there's been a lot of regression in that period of time. And Elaine is now in, in the situation where her world is very, very small. Um, sometimes she smiles as of this, uh, th- these, these moments when I, when I get together with her and we hold hands and I sing. And so w- w- this is, as I said, it's been a regression. And, you know, when Elaine first went to assisted living, we could dance and uh, we could go for walks and we could hold hands. And now uh, it's all it's all mechanicalized with wheelchairs and, and, and Hoyer lifts and so forth. But uh, what I sometimes do is I, uh, I, I hold her hand and we sing and then, you know, I, I rub her hand. And then the other day I was telling her, I said, Elaine, I said, I love you so much. And you're so beautiful. And you're the most wonderful thing that ever happened to me in, in my whole life. And she looked, she said, now what do you want? And <laughs> Uh, where things come like that from out of the blue, I don't know. But uh, as I said uh, in, the, in the very beginning, if Alzheimer's is bad, ignorance of the disease is worse, and I get to the point, make sure that we join the world of the person who is now ill. I join Elaine's world uh, when I go see her and uh, try as much as possible to give reassurance and comfort. No, I can only imagine how difficult the writing process was, but can you take us through that process just a little bit? Maybe five weeks before I'm ready to go to print, I find a series of journals and notes and diaries that Elaine had been keeping since her diagnosis. And uh, when I read through them, I want you to know that we had prayed together and we had cried together, but never did I understand the courage that it takes to be diagnosed with this illness, and then to try and live your life forward. Um, and so th- uh, her notes, uh, I went through the, those notes with my daughter, Kathy and Christine, and uh, they're in the beginning of each chapter. And people tell me that it has been a, such an important addition to the book because now they understand what the person who is ill uh, is going through their worries. But one thing that also comes about, and, and this is so critically important for caregivers to understand, their loved one needs them. Their loved one depends upon them. Their loved one is worried. What is the future going to have for me as, as, as I lose my mind? That underscores the need for caregivers to take care of themselves. They cannot go down the road of ill health. Uh, they have to understand right from the beginning that all of the armies marching, all of the Navy sailing, all of the beer that's brewed, all of the liquor that's distilled, all of that isn't going to mean anything. The point is to join the world of this person who now is, and uh, there are going to be moments of joy that we can eke from it, and thank God for that. 
Well, that's really powerful. Um, no, no, Governor, you mentioned that it's been uh, 18 years, right, of, of kind of adapting to this situation. Um, I would imagine, and you also mentioned the impact that it can have on on your uh, psychological and, and physical health even. Um, how did that adjustment process go at first? You know, I, I would imagine if, if you haven't dealt with that situation ever before, like, you know, 18 years ago, right, when it started, even if it was gradual, that had to be kind of a, a shock to the system. Uh, how was that experience? And also maybe what did you use to cope? Um, you know, how, how did you cope with, with adapting to this ever changing situation with, with your wife, the, your partner? Well, that's basically, I wrote the book because I didn't, I didn't adjust very good. Yeah. I'm still adjusting. Okay. Because as a, as a caregiver, uh, you see this disease progress and every day is a new normal every day. You know, you work hard to give your loved one that care and attention and you think you got it, everything. And all of a sudden something happens the next day where it's another step down. Uh, and, and so you try and adjust to that and then it's another step down. And so what is happening, which, which, which we caregivers have to understand, we have this unacknowledged grief and, uh, we're losing our loved ones, but we don't acknowledge it to ourselves, but also because friends and neighbors and relatives don't see what's happening to our loved one, they are not able to give us any grief acknowledged. They are not able to say, I'm sorry for your loss because they don't see any. And so the caregiver is going through this and seeing their loved one die almost every day in a a different type of fashion. You try and adjust and every day then it begins a new normal. Uh, One one other factor which comes into play, which is so important and which caused me a lot of my health problems and which I've I've come across throughout my, my, my talks, and that is the overwhelming guilt that caregivers feel. And I concluded that that guilt developed from the fact that no matter how hard you try, you can't change it. You just simply can't change it. So how do you learn and how do you cope and you survive? As I said, you understand you can't beat this disease straight down. You've got to make sure you ask for help and have the courage to do so. And then you have to make sure you join the world of this person who now is. Again, that's that's just I mean, there, that's so much insight and, and experience and, and just that's wow. Um, now, as I'm listening to you talk about all this stuff, you know, when, when we started the call, Governor, I mean, you're you're very, very light, humorous, uh, you know, easy to get along with guy. Um, how have you you know, I would imagine, you know, dealing with this heavy stuff every day, always adapting to a new normal, that can be taxing. That can be really taxing on your psychological well-being, your mental health even. Um, but clearly, you have found a way to, to keep things relatively light. How are you able to do that? I wasn't able to. I was not able to. I call it in my book, Irrational Irritability. And uh, what happens is I think is that the the emotions are so strong and so deep because you see your loved one fading, but not only do you see that, but maybe you're losing sleep and you're losing sleep because you're afraid your loved one is gonna gonna go out in the middle of the night and and, and who knows what's gonna happen and which is a a definite reality, uh, a a realistic fear. And so you're, 
you're going through all those emotions. And then what happens is because you're not getting enough sleep, you're getting not getting enough exercise. You have this unacknowledged grief. You're going through a depression. And all of a sudden you begin to think, I am a real crumb. I am a real crumb. And as you, as you have that feeling, it's almost like the analogy is, you know, um, I can criticize my relatives, but I don't want my wife to criticize my relatives. This is my job. And I can't criticize Elaine's relatives because that's, that's her job. Well, the, the fact of the matter is what happens as you go through this, this period of time in, in which you're, you're, you're feeling depressed and, and you, no matter what you do, your wife is not getting any better. She's getting worse. There's the, the constant questions that are, and now what do we do? And, and trying to rush to meet the future and all of those things are, are happening. And then someone says the slightest thing that you take at why did they say that? And you strike back. And I have bought more boxes of candies and, 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 and flowers for people and apologize because what happens is you just go off. And I'm very ashamed of that. And, and what, what I concluded is I may think that I'm a crumb, but there's enough strength in my own id, in my own person to think, well, I can think I'm a crumb, but I don't want anybody else to think I'm a crumb. So I, I, I sense what, what is happening and then I strike out and, and, and I, I am embarrassed, but I can also tell people that it's so realistic that you're going to feel those moments of, of irrational irritability because maybe sometimes you think the whole world is dumping on you and, uh, and maybe for a bit of time it is, but the fact of the matter is to blame other people and to be overly sensitive, it, is, it, it does nobody any good. And, uh, and so now, how am I coping in, 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 in this moment of time? Uh, I think just this opportunity to visit with you and to share hopefully with caregivers that there is an opportunity for caregivers and, and the person with dementia to live our best lives possible if we're smart, if we ask for help, if we understand the importance of keeping ourselves healthy. Uh, and so, um, yeah, I didn't do a very good job, but I'm working at doing a better job. I think that, you know, I mean, you mentioned that you, you felt guilty and, and even ashamed, but you know, really what, when I'm hearing this, I'm, I'm just hearing like human, like you're human, you're dealing with an incredibly, incredibly difficult situation that I'm sure anyone that hasn't gone through that situation has no idea how it is. They don't know. And, 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 you know, you can, we can try our absolute best, but we are human and we're going to, you know, we're not going to be perfect and, um, you know, I, I just, I am, I am in incredible admiration for your, for your strength and resolve and also your honesty and, you know, and, and willingness to be like, yeah, you know what, I, I could have done this a little better. I, you know, I'm going to make an amends right here, but, um, that's, we all have to do that. There's, there's literally, I've never met somebody that doesn't have to do that. I've done it. Uh, we've all done it. You know, Somebody once told me a while ago that when you look back at your behavior during a certain period, you feel ashamed or just can't get over it. 
he told me, you know, he said, think of this. You did the best you could at the time. And we're not the same people now that we were then. And so to go back and hash over how we could have and should have and would have, it just, there's, there's really no reason to do that. I agree with you, but again, uh, we're human. And uh, those are, we've, we've, you know, it's, it's sort of, that someone once told me that there's the horse and there is the rider. And uh, if you're the horse, you have things happening there, you know, on your back that are forcing you to go one way or another. That's not the way to be. We should be the rider. We should try and get in enough control of our emotions so that we are in then a process of, of guiding our life uh, a little bit better and a little bit easier than if we have something on our back that's going to be forcing us. And again, a lot, that is a lot easier said than done. I just want to just express um, my gratitude for you joining us today, um, Governor, and also in sharing your story and uh, and just you know express my admiration for you know your strength and resolve in going through this and, and also, and then sharing your story, which I think ultimately is one of the, the best things we can do because everyone's got this journey in life that they go through and there are ups and downs and we fall and we get up and you know, what, what can we do with that? How can we turn that into something, uh, positive overall positive? And I think the answer that I've always heard when I've, you know, examined situations like this in life is share our story share our whether it's you know whether it's speaking whether it's writing a book uh letting other people gain insight from the experiences that you had and you know maybe it can help guide them and navigate their journey through situations in life that are also going to be challenging well we tried and then another way of saying that we cannot control the speed of the wind or the direction but we can also always adjust our sails yes if as we do that but again uh, My Two Elaines uh, is the name of the book. And um, oh, we do have a website, by the way. Yeah, where can, where can people? So uh, before we close up, I just I know after, you know, listeners are going to want to purchase a copy of this book. How can they order it? It's My Two Elaines. My Two Elaines website. Uh, and uh, all one word, My Two Elaines, all one word dot com. They can do that or they can go to Amazon. Any profits from the sale of this book go to support Alzheimer's support groups. And so this is not a money-making proposition. I was going to tell you uh, about the fact that people have picked up this book and they started to read it and they couldn't put it down. By the way, it's an easy read. It's got uh, large print. Uh, there's a number of pictures in there. Ooh. And, uh, but what happened is a year ago, January, it was really so cold and we were running out of uh, running out of books. So I went to the 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 printer and I said we need more books as quickly as possible well the printer came back earlier he came he filled out the order earlier than than I anticipated which was great but then also what was important is it, it, if you look at the book my two Elaine's you're going to see that there's a shellac or or like a varnish on the front you know nice and shiny well what happens he didn't let that varnish dry and so people picked up that book. Well, that varnish became sticky. So people picked up the book and they started to read it and they wanted to put it down. But because the varnish was sticky, they just simply couldn't put it down. And so <laughs> I'm bragging, not, but I do want you to know that I am um, 
<laughs> Perfect. I guess that'll do it for our time here today. But again, uh, I just want to uh, thank you so much, Governor Schreiber, for uh, joining us today. And again, we're gonna put the uh, we're gonna put the website for my two Elaines in the show notes of this episode, so folks can just go right there and grab it. And um, and we really appreciate your time. So thank you so much for for sharing your story uh, with us today. And uh, just thank you wholeheartedly. Thank you very much. All right. And Bruce, before we end, um, where can folks find you and learn uh, more about uh, your books and other things that you have going on? Thanks a lot, Chris. Uh, my website is brucesteam.com. That's www.brucesteam.com. And on my website, uh, not only do I have the podcast, but I'll have several articles because I do write for a local 50 plus magazine and I write articles just about on every subject related to seniors and boomers moving and downsizing. Great. And thanks again to, uh, to Governor Schreiber. Thanks again, Bruce. And thanks to everyone out there for listening. We would love if you could subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any future episodes. So make sure you go to the podcast and hit subscribe. Uh, you can find the podcast, of course, at Bruce's website, which we already we already mentioned, but I'll mention it again. It's www.brucesteam.com. You can find us on Apple Podcasts. You can find us on Spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts. So, so thanks again for listening and join us next week when we will keep you moving in the right direction. See you then. <laughs>